Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 32. Last week, I continued covering the Philistines as found in the outside record, which really isn't much, with most of what's known coming from inscriptions in other nearby societies or uncovered artifacts, mostly pottery and buildings. And with these, researchers have to rely on their similarities to the same sort of things found in other places. This week, I'm going to wrap up everything we know about them so that we can keep driving forward in the book of Deuteronomy. After all, that's where I am in the history of the Old Testament. And with that, let's get started. After nine episodes about the Philistines, I'm going to pull it all together in this last one, attempting to weave together their history from the Old Testament, the written record, and archaeology. Attempting. Uncovered artifacts have been found at a few places that are also identified as being Philistine in the biblical text. Last week, I covered the pottery that's been uncovered in the Jezreel Valley, the site of the Battle of Gilboa, where Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistine army. Actually, Saul was shot by the archers, but chose to fall on his own sword. And in this case, that was literal. As for the pottery, it wasn't only found in the valley of Saul's death, but also in a few places in the south of Canaan, places identified as being in the Philistine Pentapolis. At least three of the five, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. At least this is where the earliest examples of pottery are found. As time passed, and in this case, it was merely a few decades, getting us to about 1150 BC, pottery thought to be Philistine and dating to this time has been found further north. This would have been about the time the Israelites were finally crossing the Jordan into Canaan, maybe a little later. Don't get too hung up on any of these dates, as they tend to be estimates built on top of estimates. As for the Philistine territorial expansion, in this case, it was into the Yarkon River region. This is around the cities of Tel Aviv and Jaffa, both in the modern country of Israel. The ancient sites appear to be of an agricultural nature and comprise three separate settlements. And given that this is in a broader territory, the natural conclusion by researchers is that the Philistines had expanded their holdings. And in this case, they think the Philistines expanded into the greater Canaan region over several years. This would make it shortly after the reign of Ramses III in Egypt. He ruled between about 1186 and 1155 BC. And recall that inscriptions found in Egypt indicate his forces defeated the Peleset, assumed to be the Philistines, and possibly exiled many of them to Canaan to act as mercenaries, helping the Egyptians to maintain control over their territorial holdings in the region. In this first short era, the Philistines are thought to have settled in a small area within the coastal plain. The region encompassed by the five cities of their Pentapolis, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. Then, 
history moved on as it tends to do. Despite the Egyptians having the Philistines in their employ, working to defend their interest in Canaan, they would withdraw from the region after Ramses III's death. His reign was of constant conflict, and not just in Canaan, but also on his western front, fending off invading Libyans. Of course, all of this was during the turmoil of the Bronze Age collapse. He ultimately met his end by means of a harem conspiracy, with one of his wives and his son assassinating him. With his death, the Egyptian Empire closed up shop in Canaan, leaving the Peleset, the Philistines, to their own vices. And this meant they were trained, situated, armed, and in control of a small but expanding portion of the region. Of course, after the first period came the second. The major player, the Egyptians, had taken their ball and bat and beat a path for their homeland, apparently preferring the comfort found in the pyramids and delta for the constant conflict that was, is, and maybe forever will be the Middle East. As an aside, just know whenever I write something like that, it was probably late at night after a long week at work. I can't, and even if I could, wouldn't explain it. Sometimes it just flows. Enough of that peek behind the curtain. Moving along. Back in Canaan, the second period proved fruitful for the Philistines as they took advantage of the power vacuum and expanded their territory. The Israelites were just settling and immersed in their decentralized period, ruled rather loosely by the judges. From the outside looking in, it was a brewing battle, both parties relatively new to the region, one coming in from the sea and west, and the other from the desert and east, though via a really roundabout, wandering course, and each slowly headed in the direction of the other. Even if we didn't know what would happen, we could see where this was going. A conflict that would last several centuries and was well documented in the historical books of the Old Testament. As for what was going on within Philistine society at this time, there are a few clues. But in reality, they are only clues, are subject to much interpretation, and leave a great portion unresolved. We do see in the text of the Old Testament that they had mastered iron working, but regarded it as a state secret, refusing to share it with the Israelites. Goliath was armored in bronze, and most of his weapons were bronze too. But the head, the business end, of his spear was iron. I previously covered why this small bit of information was important, but that wasn't all. Outside of weapons and warfare, they used iron, and even sold iron tools to their neighbors and frequent enemies, but not the technology. Instead, when the Israelites needed iron agricultural tools, or even to get the ones they had previously purchased repaired, they had to pay the Philistines to do it. So, not just potential military benefits, but also economic. Archaeological records from the period show something in addition to this. The Philistines were beginning to integrate outside influences into their world, 
At least, that's what the pottery shows. This could have been the result of trade, or more general contact with their neighbors. And while the Israelites, for the most part, tried to avoid intermarrying with outsiders, the Philistines are thought to have done the opposite. We see this in other areas of their culture, specifically in their religion. They appear to have worshipped the broad Canaanite pantheon, which included deities such as Baal, Astarte, and Dagon. Now, if we circle back to the theory that the Philistines were originally from Greece and migrated to Egypt and Canaan in the latter portion of the second millennium BC, then you may be wondering why they would have adopted the Canaanite pantheon and not stuck with the Greek slate of deities. The answer to this is extremely straightforward. They left Greece too soon. The earliest evidence of Greek mythology, at least what we know as Greek mythology, dates to about 700 BC, hundreds of years after the Philistine exodus. Of course, before the ancient Greeks were the Mycenaeans, the people who inhabited the area as the Peliset, the forefathers of the Philistines, as the Peliset were departing for greener pastures. The Mycenaeans had their own slate of gods, some of which may have developed into the Greek gods, and these, as far as researchers can determine, were the usual that's seen in polytheism. A deity for each natural phenomenon, the ocean, earthquakes, storms, volcanoes, the typical way these things were explained. And when the Peliset moved on to Egypt and Canaan, who had deities for the same natural things and events, adoption of the local name and the tweaking of the individual characteristics became quite natural and fluid. Add to this that possibly everyone was illiterate and relied on oral tradition, you end up with recent immigrants practicing a locally founded religion, which in reality is quite similar to the one their parents and grandparents left behind. Of course, not so for the Israelites and their seemingly unique monotheism, coupled with their stone tablets and somewhat more literate population. Speaking of population, when the Philistines first arrived, there weren't that many of them, but we don't know how many. And the general rule in archaeology is that larger populations tend to leave more evidence of their existence. Of course, the opposite is true and has deeper ramifications. Smaller populations tend to leave less, and less is harder to uncover. By the time the Israelites settled in Canaan, and more specifically in the 12th century BC, the Canaanites are estimated to have had a population in western Canaan of about 25,000. Contrast this with the Israelites, who were said to number, in the book of Numbers chapter 1, counted via a census, exactly 630,550. And this number was limited to those men 20 years old and older, of fighting age, meaning there were more, potentially in excess of a million. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. About 100 years later, in the 11th century BC, 
the Philistine population had grown to an estimated 30,000. By this time, up to half the number may have been more native Canaanites who melted into Philistine territory and society, perhaps in a manner similar to when David and his 600 men, along with their families, settled in their territory for a few years. Their population is assumed to have plateaued at this level for several hundred years until they met their ultimate demise, well, really assimilation, with the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar. I previously covered their economy, at least the little that is known about it. Obviously, iron production, but also olive oil, wine, and potentially an ancient version of beer. But man cannot survive on oil, wine, and beer alone. And beer requires grain, so likely that too. They probably had shepherds for sheep, and therefore wool and meat. There's also evidence of pork and canine consumption. Likely other livestock. Recall that when they sent the ark back to the Israelites, it was placed in a wagon drawn by cattle. And given that little tidbit... They likely raised cattle for milk and protein, and with milk came cheese. But their economy wasn't just agriculture and metal, especially for a formerly seafaring people who settled on the coast. There was certainly a trade element to it, too, though there are fewer clues pointing in that direction. There's also somewhat direct evidence that their society was fairly well organized, at least organized enough to plan out their cities and towns, complete with residential and industrial zones. And industrial zones mean industry, production of some sort. Think iron, olive oil, wine, and surely other products, potentially leather, wool, grain mills. One of the more insightful archaeological finds comes from their burial practices, Archaeologists from Harvard, Boston College, Wheaton College in Illinois, and Troy University in Alabama. And I'm going to pause here just for a second. As an academic, I can say with a small bit of authority, this is about as diverse of an academic group as I've ever seen assembled. Unpausing. These researchers dug up Philistine sites in the region for some 30 years, first starting in 1985, and what they mostly dug up was an ancient Philistine cemetery. I touched on this a couple of episodes ago, but mostly as a placeholder. This last episode specific to the Philistines is the deep dive into their cemetery. The plot contained over 150 grave sites, dating to between the 11th and 8th centuries B.C., so, when they were fully engulfed in their conflicts with the Israelites. The cemetery is located in the ancient city of Ashkelon, one of the five cities of their Pentapolis. Then, the modern controversy around the research. After 30 years of digging, hypothesis, testing, and the remaining steps of the scientific process, the researchers were ready for the final findings inner protesters, in this case, ultra-Orthodox Jewish adherents. These protesters were concerned about the digs disturbing Jewish grave sites. Doing this is a violation of their religious tenets. 
Obviously, they weren't concerned about the Philistine grave sites, but the possibility that Jewish graves could be in the same ground, or that these were actually Jewish graves. All of this led to a three-year delay in the publication of the combined team's findings, eventually making it to the printing press in mid-2016. As far as discoveries go, that means this is late-breaking news. Which, of course, leads me to what all they found. There were the usual pottery fragments and other ceramic pieces, which really makes me wonder why there isn't a pottery age between the stone and copper. That seems to be a significant development, but I digress. The Philistine pottery fragments were inscribed with non-Semitic writing, likely indicating that the Philistines were not native to Canaan. That certainly aligns with the biblical text, along with Egyptian and Assyrian records. Naturally, since it was a cemetery, there were graves to be examined too. In this case, about 150 such tombs. Most of these were oval-shaped, with many interred in ashlar chamber tombs. What this means is that they were constructed of a cut stone, laid into an oval pattern, and larger than economically necessary for the burial. So, these were likely prominent Philistines, at least wealthy enough to afford the expense. Potter's fields never have such structures. Besides the ashlar chambered tombs, four of the interred were cremated. In other Canaanite societies, such burials were not very common. You should be able to guess where these did happen more frequently in that era, pre-Greece, the Aegean region. There were two last things. The first is relatively minor, and that's that the tombs also yielded evidence of perfume, which, taken alone, isn't very meaningful. Some of the researchers think this points to something else, that the Philistines believed in some sort of afterlife, and the perfume was necessary so that they didn't smell like a dead body when they got there. That thought has never crossed my mind, but then again, my belief in the afterlife is certainly well separated from a Philistine's. At least I speculate so. The last thing the graves yielded was DNA extracted from some of the skeletal remains. I also touched on this a few weeks back but once again reserved the deeper dive for this episode. Using DNA uncovered by the combined U.S. University's research teams, a German nonprofit research institute, specifically the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History, analyzed the DNA from the skeletons and compared it to DNA databases from subjects from all over the globe. Of course, specifically focusing on the ancient residents of Canaan, along with Egypt and southern Europe. What they found correlated with the other findings of this research, along with the biblical text, and Assyrian and Egyptian recorded history. The remains in the tombs tended to have a common ancestry, and that was from southern Europe, probably occurring sometime around the 12th century BC at least according to the dating of the remains in the tombs that showed the most of such ancestry. The oldest of the DNA samples tended to be most similar to people from the same time 
who lived on the island of Crete, Cretans. And there's even more detail. Uncovered in other tombs were some of the earliest and youngest dead, infants. And besides being tragic, this is also telling. Since they were infants, they were likely born in Canaan, more specifically in Ashkelon. They would have been too young to arrive by ship or foot, and given how slow transportation was at the time, not enough time had passed for them to have been born elsewhere. And they had the same DNA as their parents, which was distinct from that of the Canaanite natives. The conclusion is that their parents came from elsewhere, and had likely done so rather recently. These buried infants were not found in the Philistine cemetery, but instead were buried under the floors of the Philistine homes. I don't know what to make of that. The more exact finding was that DNA from the Philistine skeletal remains were between 20 and 60% similar to DNA from ancient skeletons from Crete, Iberia, along with being similar to modern people living in Sardinia. Wait, Iberia? Meaning Spain? Sardinia? Yeah, from those places too. I have to admit, I didn't see that coming, but after having a little bit of time to think it over, I can make some sense of it. The simplest explanation of this is that the Philistines were truly seafaring people who were a genetic blend of the entire North Mediterranean coast, and they were engaged in trade. Then the Bronze Age collapse hit, and the next thing you know, what had been a multi-ethnic group of traders on Crete, or Sardinia, were headed to Egypt and Canaan. Though, there are the usual warnings associated with such a small sample size. Don't draw too many conclusions. And do note, mixed in this DNA were also markers from the Canaanite region, indicating a migration from southern Europe with people that settled in the region, then intermarried with the locals, just like all the other archaeological evidence pointed to. The inference from this is likely a relatively small group migrated, established control, and dominated a small part of the region for several centuries, and part of this domination was to allow outsiders in, with whom they continued the bloodlines. Supporting this conclusion is that the European genetic markers diminished with the passage of time. This all happened over the course of a couple hundred years, where, by this time, genetically at least, the people were more Canaanite than Southern European. The theory is that, while they may have genetically been more Canaanite than European, culturally, the Philistines remained distinct from their neighbors for about 600 years. And that's it. No written records from the Philistines themselves, but instead records from Egypt, Assyria, and the Israelites. Most in the book you have on a shelf. Some of their geography is determinable from these sources though a few of these cities haven't yet been placed on a modern map. All assumed to be on, or at least near the coast. Seafarers, traders, olive oil producers, masters of iron, warriors, mercenaries, and giants living among them. 
the killers of Samson and King Saul, a one-time ally of David, and the people the Israelites took their plows to to get them worked on. Short-term possessors of the Ark of the Covenant, only to get tumors, potentially hemorrhoids, as a punishment. A history intertwined with that of the Twelve Tribes. Pottery genetics, architecture, iron, and much more, all pointing to southern Europe, potentially the Greek Isles, and arriving just in time to be a constant antagonist and rare ally. That's the Philistines, and a good stopping point. Join me next week when I'll start back up again with Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.